I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. Welcome to the June 29th, uh, 2022 Strategic Farming and Field Notes, uh, and we are welcoming uh, our guest uh, this morning, and uh, my name is Dave Nikolai with the University of Minnesota. Uh, my co-moderator uh, for the program this morning is uh, Ryan Miller. Uh, we're both uh, crops educators with the University of Minnesota Extension. Uh, we want to make sure that you understand that these sessions are brought to you through the generous support of not only the University of Minnesota Extension, but also the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, along with the uh, Minnesota Corn Growers Research and Promotion Council. Uh, our, our guests today, our panelists, are Bruce Potter, uh, who is the uh, University of Minnesota Extension Integrated Pest Management Specialist out of the Southwest Research and Outreach Center at Lamberton, Minnesota. Our special guest this uh, this morning is Andy Nesseth. Andy is a part owner and uh, agronomist consultant of Extended Ag Services uh, from uh, Lakefield, Minnesota. And then later on in the program, we're going to be joined by Dr. Dean Melvick, a University of Minnesota Extension Plant Pathologist for uh, corn and soybean. So I'd like to welcome my co-host this morning, um, uh, Ryan Miller. How are things in Rochester, Minnesota, Ryan, this morning? Going well, Dave, going well. Excellent, excellent. So we're going to get right back into our our, our program here. Um, actually, and I, I'm I'm going to bring in uh, Bruce Potter here for the majority of this. And Bruce and I were visiting about some of the integrated pest management and some of the other issues that are happening right now out in the field. And one of the things that we did talk about was corn rootworm. Uh, we usually think about corn rootworm a little bit later in the season, but a lot of things are happening right now, Bruce, in terms of uh, detection, managing and also thinking about traps. So I'm just gonna turn it over to you and maybe you can introduce your relationship with Andy and some of the things that are going on in Southwest Minnesota. Well, sure. Um, thanks for having me on today. And, and uh, Andy and uh, Andy's uh, company and, and uh, myself and Ken Osley have been cooperating for a few years, uh, looking at uh, rootworm populations in Southwest Minnesota. We've got a, a, a trapping network where uh, supported by the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. Uh, we'll, we supply traps, people put the traps out in fields, uh, and monitor uh, for about a month, monitor uh, rootworm populations. And my point to that is twofold. One is to, uh, you know, increase awareness of uh, rootworm issues in Minnesota. The other is to see if, uh, you know, how uh, the BT traits are performing, if they're holding up. We've got a lot of resistance issues. Uh, particularly with western corn rootworms in this part of the state um, and and really that's looking at beetles as they emerged a little bit later on that's uh, one of the ways that uh, best ways to, to develop a rootworm management plan um, you know knowing what populations are in the field if your trait management practices are working whether that's insecticides traits um, or if you can get by with a non-traded corn for example so 
Um, Andy, do you want to mention anything about doing the trapping and why you do it and how you do it? And we can maybe yeah, do it later. Absolutely, Bruce. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's it's much for the same reason. We are um, trying to make sure we're monitoring populations with our clients, making sure we're aware of, of where things are at, what the trends are. Uh, we're often trying to examine the dominant populations, uh, whether it's northerns or westerns in the field. And um, we work with a lot of clients that that have a variety of rotations that use on a variety of trades. So um, we just want to be able to provide them with some information and make some decisions in the future and and, and select the best uh, management strategy that they can. Yeah, one of the things we've been seeing, uh, particularly last year, we had some have had some pretty high uh, rootworm populations. Um, and one of the things that's a little most concerning, I guess, is if we look at uh, untraded corn and 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 uh, BT hybrids in some of these real high pressure long term corn fields, there's really not that much difference in beetle populations between the two of them. So we've got some real uh, resistance management issues we have to have to work through. And um, you know, Andy, how do you how do you work through with the client, particularly some of these livestock guys where they're uh, they need the corn? It's hard for them to 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 plant something besides corn? Yeah, I mean, for us, we try to put together um, as best we can sort of a four-year uh, window of, of management where um, we know we have to have a non-host crop in there at this point. Um, we can't rely on traits and insecticide to, to manage rootworm effectively. Um, we've, we've learned that kind of the hard way, unfortunately. And, and with uh, some of the dry weather we had last year, that became extremely apparent. So. We try and put together a four-year plan where we're looking at a non-host crop, maybe a non-BT hybrid in, in, in immediately following there, and then a mix of either insecticide um, or a pyramid um, trait. Um, we try not to stack them up if we, if we can get away with it. I mean, typically we want to, the data has shown us that that's not necessarily an effective option. Um, it's sometimes difficult to um, get that. Uh, when you're in the field, you know, a lot of times you want to hit it with everything you can, right? So that's a conversation we got to have, but we're looking at data and, 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 and being reasonable about that and doing the cost benefit, um, not just in the near term, but, you know, long term and not using up the, the tools that we do have. So it's, it's really about trying to find a rotation where we can look at four, maybe even five years out and say, okay, we're going to rotate through these different traits and these different strategies and in, in, in these different fields to try and continue to mix and match things. And, and, um, you know, it's, there's give and take because when you need the corn, you know, there's a lot of pressure to plant it. Um, but, you know, nobody wins when we've got corn down, you know, um, we're losing, uh, you know, a lot of, leaving a lot of bushels in the field um, with uh, poor performance too. So, so it's, it's just a constant evolving conversation and, and, and these traps help guide that. Obviously we're, we're doing some root digs and we're evaluating lodged corn and, and yield data, but um, this kind of helps guide us where maybe we can maybe push, push the rotation out a little bit longer or, or it's, it's, it's coming to the end where we need to go to that non-host crop. So it's just, it's all about data points to try and have a, 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 a conversation that's, that's based on, on, on real things and not just assumptions. So We've got, uh, you know, uh, right now we're kind of getting close to that peak egg hatch as far as if we look at the greedy models, which are, you know, Kind of a rough guideline but and we're going to start trying to float some larvae uh probably even this afternoon to see if uh, in our some of our research plots uh you know if we get a feel for how well these things overwinter I'm, I'm afraid they did fairly well somebody actually sent me a picture of a rootworm larvae yesterday so unfortunately they're not all dead um 
And so really, I think the, the point the point to make now is we're all really, we're really done managing rootworms for this crop. Um, and everything we're doing now is going to be for the 2023 crop, um, whether that's uh, monitoring beetles, um, you know, either doing whole plant counts or using sticky traps, starting to plan for the future. Uh, some people might want to try to do some of the uh, adult beetle control. Um, that's kind of a dicey proposition. Um, you have to time that, that, that control to when you start, got, start seeing gravid females out there. If you put it too early, you're, you're gonna miss a lot of the emergence and you're gonna get kill mostly males. Uh, and if you wait too long, you're gonna have some egg laying and you're probably gonna have to treat more than once. But um, even that's, even that's a, a practice to manage for the following year. So right now guys should be starting to think about really managing rooms for 2023, I think. So, so Bruce, um... If we lose a trait in a field, if a population builds, so you've got, you know, decent resistance to, to a, a given trait, um, is that gone forever? Or what, what's your kind of perspective as far as, you know, can you get back to that trait or? or? Um, well, from, from what we've seen, at least, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not so clear on the Herculex, but I suspect it's going to be the same way, but the, all the cry three rick traits, whether they be Duracade, uh, yield guard, there's cross resistance and there's uh, a lot of, in most cases, there's some cross resistance. Um, and actually there's no evidence that those resistant beetles are, are any less fit than the susceptible beetles. So there's no reason for that, that, uh, resistance to res to reverse itself. So I think once you have it, you're kind of stuck with it, and then you're basically um, trying to keep those those populations in that field uh, low. Um, so even though that resistance is there, the damage or the crop injury is is minimized. So at some point in the future, though, you can bring that trait back in potentially, but you're going to see resistance build again, or a population that's resistant build, I guess maybe. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you know, it's, you just, as that population builds, um, you're going to start seeing the resistance develop. We've had uh, in Southwest Minnesota in Rock County, the first resistant fields I was aware of was 2009, which was pretty close to after that trait was released or introduced. Um, and, you know, we had a Kind of a buildup 2009 2010 2012 was a dry year real uh we had quite a few problems and then it kind of disappeared but the reason the problems disappeared were the rootworm populations were were down not because the trait was gone it's just the populations were down so it's it's still there it's just kind of gets suppressed when the beetle pop when the, the rootworms are low so uh andy if you are working with uh, one of the your clients say for example, and maybe it's a, an area or farm that you don't have a lot of familiarity with, but um, do you have some best management practices as far as rotating, uh, even if may perhaps you're in a corn on corn situation in terms of traits, uh, when you maybe don't have a lot of the trap data uh, to work with, what's, what's been kind of your go-to or some somewhat successful uh, recipe, so to speak? Uh, you, look, you look at a number of things, obviously, and in yield, but what's your thoughts on, on rotation here when it comes to uh, 
uh, traits over time with some of the growers? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. Um, we typically, you know, if we're coming out of a non-host crop, we're going to plant a double pro hybrid without corn rootworm trait in it, um, purely because we're we're making that assumption that we don't have a lot of extended diapause and, and the pressure is going to be relatively low. Um, I'm fortunate enough to not work in a lot of areas where I don't necessarily, where I know what, how much corn is around, right? So that, that's going to um, dictate some of that. But then uh, I guess our, our, our next strategy would then be to go a double pro. Um, if we're, we're going to plant continuous corn, that is, or go back to a double pro, but with an insecticide option. Um, you know, that again, depends on whether the producer has that uh, technology on the planter. Um, from there, we would probably go to a smart stack hybrid um, if we're going to continue to have corn. And from there, um, that's where obviously at that point, we're going to have some, some data and some management. That's where we start looking at, you know, maybe another smart stack again. But at that point, we really start to be, you know, trying to, to, to look back to a non-host crop. So when we talked about that four or five year window, that's where we're trying to mix and match a little bit of those traits um, and, and management strategies between insecticide and, and, and relying on the traits before moving back to a non-host crop. So that's been as successful as anything. Um, probably the best thing we can do, Dave, is just have adequate rainfall. So the feeding that we do have, we get decent root regeneration, um, but you know that's out of our control. So we got to control everything else the best we can. We're not big fans of doing the over-the-top um, beetle bombing, as they say, with with uh, with a fungicide application. We just find that to be pretty difficult to do. As as Bruce alluded to, it's you're kind of trying to thread a needle there. Uh, that's not to say it's not done. Um, you know, uh, a lot of my clients are known to, to want to revenge kill, you know, after seeing a, a, a rough year, they want, they want to do what they can and, 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 and do some beetle bombing, but we really try and reserve that often for, um, fields that we absolutely know we're going to go to corn on corn. Um, but it's really the, probably the lowest thing on the list in terms of successful strategies. Well, I, I think you anticipated two of our, uh, three questions that just came in. One of them was on foliar controls and corn rootworm. We touched on that. Um, we talked a little bit about crop rotation. Certainly, I would both you would both agree, Bruce and Andy, about alfalfa being an op, an, an opportunity for that uh, in terms of crop rotation. Uh, there was the other question that came in was, uh, have you had much work? I, I think this, this is with uh, uh, rephrasing a soil or DNA to determine future potentials, but I'm not quite sure on the context of that question, Bruce. Um, I think, well, there's a company that, that uh, is looking at uh, things like SCN uh, DNA and corn rootworm DNA in the soil, in soil samples, and then trying to um, determine what, you know, from that determining how, what your risk is. I don't know how well that works. I haven't tried it myself. Uh, um, I think it's, you know, you've got, yeah, go ahead. Well, we've, we've used that technology a little bit or tried, um, you know, I think, I think it's interesting. I don't know if it's particular, I, I don't want to endorse or condemn at this point, but um, I think it's interesting information. I don't think it's any more effective than, than, than yeah. doing what we're currently doing, I guess is the way I would put that. So Andy, are you focused mostly on scouting and trapping is the monitoring methods? Yeah, that's, that's, that's primarily it. And, and um, uh, we've, we've supplemented with some of that DNA sampling as well, but um it, it, it more or less confirmed what the scouting and trapping was already was already telling us. Are there any um, uh, thresholds? And I, Bruce, this has always been old, old data, but, um, you know, beetles per plant here. I mean, we're not into, you know, into the area now yet. We're obviously where we're um, 
tasseling and silking here, but thinking ahead here for this season, if people are going to go out and look at beetles, uh, beetles per plant, um, any any thoughts uh, thoughts on that? I know the research is sometimes variable. You mean as far well as far as well? I uh, mean, if they're going to hand count, besides it, besides yeah, I mean, if, you know, basically the number is a beetle per plant, and you got uh, you're at risk for a. Uh, for rootworm injury the following year. Um, it kind of changes a little bit with northern corn rootworms and extended diapause uh, because you're, you're going to have another year of mortality in there and, and that sort of thing. But, but uh, it's three quarters per be beetle per plant if it's, if it's a second year corn and the uh, beetle per plant if it's, if it's continuous corn. And the only thing you got to be a little worried about it, careful there is, is you know, what the weather conditions are like can change how active the beetles are. And, and but if you're counting during, the, you know, 10 to three or the middle of the day, that's, it's going to be pretty consistent. Well, we're coming towards the end. I got one last question that came in. Does the late planting corn aggravate the problem? And certainly we had this, this year, uh, Andy and Bruce, any thoughts on here as we, we close out this segment on late planting um, corn? Well, it'll change things. Um, for one thing, if you've got a rootworm infestation in the field and you're and those eggs are hatching and you've got smaller corn uh, roots, um, that impact on that of that early feeding, if the larvae can get to those roots, uh, is going to probably be a little more pronounced. It's kind of like having a small rooted hybrid in there. Uh, the other thing it's going to do is if you've got some fields that are late planted and some that are not, um, those late planted fields are going to silk uh, silk a little later and you're going to draw beetles into those fields. So um, you're going to get, especially uh, once those beetles get crowded and, and uh, uh, you know, run, start running out of good green silks in the, in the field they're at, they're, some of them will move, particularly northerns. I think, Andy, we, you maybe put your uh, email in the, in the chat or whatever. So uh, they have questions on that. Any last things here before we switch over, Andy, that you wanted to mention that we, uh, didn't touch on uh, in terms of that, but we uh, appreciate that. We'll we'll see if we can get it to rain a little bit more at the proper time. And some areas of Minnesota are getting gone on the dry side. Uh, Bruce, any last thoughts here before we bring Dr. Melvick in? No, I think uh, the only thing I'd like to mention, if somebody is interested in part participating in that trapping program, we're just getting ready to start, start sending out the traps now, uh, contact me, uh, bpotter at umn.edu. Um, and, you know, we'd be happy to have, uh, have volunteers. The more, the more traps we got out there, the better picture we're going to have of what's happening in Minnesota. Okay. Well, we're going to ask, um, Dean to unmute, um, unmute himself there. And then, uh, Andy and, and Bruce, you can certainly, uh, hang on. I'm going to turn it over kind of to my, uh, co-host here, uh, Ryan down in Southeast Minnesota. Uh, uh, the, uh, kind of the segment here we think about tar spot on corn and everything else going on here. So Ryan, you've certainly been in the middle of some of that, but uh, you know, um, let's talk a little bit about what we had for, uh, for crops, cropping season right now in, in terms of uh, the 2022 uh, uh, season here. So Ryan, take it away. All right. So, well, Dean joined us here. Uh, just kind of get perspective from Dean. Uh, as far as the year goes, what have you been seeing for, for plant diseases so far? Well, fortunately, and I've been hearing very little about significant problems. We're in that in-between period now, and we usually don't see a lot of problems. Um, we're past, at least in many fields, on the seedling uh, 
the most susceptible stage with a lot of the crop and you know it's growing fast and they're not really susceptible to most problems right now although some of the problems that we see later on are actually getting established now such as SDS and soybean. Anyway, I've heard some issues with stand establishment um, due to various causes. Sometimes the diagnosis is still in progress to figure out what the real cause was. So, you know, that's, that's still uh, certainly an issue. And, but I guess looking forward, um, you know, let's think about soybeans, think about some of the bigger risks. Um, you know, one of them are prominent ones in at least big chunks of the Southern part of the state is sudden death syndrome. And you know, we certainly there are places where we're set up for a, a problem because of rain earlier on, but we need to keep getting rain um, before that problem really establishes itself. For example, I have research studies done at Wasika. We haven't irrigated them, but certainly they're showing their early season symptoms like we like to see in our research studies. So the fungus is established, the disease is established, and we need a sufficient rain throughout you know, July and into August to really get the disease to be a problem. And that's true of other diseases too. Um, so so Dean, it's a matter of watch and look at this point. Yeah. So, so Dean, what if a grower or consultant or someone's out looking for STS early season symptoms, what are they looking for at this point in the season? Yeah, the, the typical intervenal chlorosis on the leaflets um, at the very early stages, like B1, and you know, even in our inoculated research trials, we, we see a very low percentage, like less than 1% of the plants showing those symptoms. Whereas later on, we'll see you know, maybe 50 to 70% of plants in those same plots developing symptoms. But we like to see just a few of the plants showing symptoms to be sure that we got the infection started. And that so, often shows up much more later. So the incidence per plant is really low right now. So you're going to, you're really, it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack, maybe, you know, relying on some of your past information on where the disease has been a problem in the past would be a, a maybe a strategy. Yeah, that, that's right. That's a better indicator than to try to go to a field and, and find it. Although again, um, if it's, if it's really developing to the problem stage, I think, you know, one in 200 plants will probably be showing it at, at least. Um, and Dean, oh. I remember you said some things um, you in the past about heavy rainfalls and in, in how those line up and kind of uh, increasing your risk as far as seeing this disease. I think there was some guidelines you had in the past with sort of these real heavy rains and when we tend to see more problems with, you know, with the, the disease in, in general, I guess. Yeah, that's that's kind of a, a general observation across, you know, we've seen it some in Minnesota, certainly we've seen it across Illinois and Iowa as well. If we have conditions suitable to get the infection of SDS started, which is usually within two to three weeks after planting, probably, if there are heavy rainfalls scattered throughout the summer, you know, late June, throughout July and early August, that, that really seems to promote the disease to become worse than it is otherwise. Although I can't say that regular rainfalls won't also contribute the same amount, but, but there is a pattern that's been shown for a number of places. Okay, uh, you know, so now I'm uh, kind of switching gears, a new disease, uh, at least for Minnesota the past couple of years, looking at this corn tar spot, um, do you have a sense this year, or are we 
going to have potential again? And where is that potential at in terms of uh, uh, risk hmm. level? And what should people be doing, I guess, right now? Yeah, yeah. Right now, there's 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 nothing uh, we can do. You know, the the disease is it's it's definitely coming. You know, in the southeast where you are, Ryan, it's pretty well established over a big part of that corner of the state now. And I think, as many of you know, you've seen our distribution maps confirming it up as far as at least as Stearns County, and as far west as Wasika, and maybe a little bit farther west. But that's only where we found it. And, and those fringe counties were only at extremely low levels very late in the season last year. But it does indicate that the disease is has spread and established probably further than we really know. What that means for disease development this year, it's very hard to predict. Again, I think we're pretty sure that a number of the fields and areas in Southeast Minnesota where it's been prevalent the last three years, it'll come back again, especially if we have sufficient rainfall. So if it's a very dry August, probably see very little tar spot. So, so that's, that's kind of what we know about the distribution, you know, limited, but certainly the risk is higher in the Southeast, but it's increasing up in the central Minnesota too. Well, and I, Dean, and another thing maybe to address is in Southeast, the other issue we've got is that, you know, we do have a heavy base of corn. So we've got a lot of livestock and, and a need for corn production. Right. So a lot of these fields end up in corn production multiple years and and maybe that's a, a contributing factor to seeing seeing this particular uh, problem spread yeah undoubtedly it is and the other thing i guess thinking about where we are now we're here at the end of june we've never seen symptoms in minnesota before the third i think third week of july so late july in the far southeastern part of the state where it's established if i heard that they found it in Indiana as of last week, in northern Indiana. You know, they're they're certainly ahead of us in, in planting there and in, I think in degree days as well. But it can develop early, although it rarely is seen. Now the biggest problem occurs in August. That's when that disease really takes off. You know, there's a there's a question actually from one of our coworkers, Angie uh, Peltier, put in a little bit about fungicides and that. That leads into other fungicide use, but I know we've had webinars in the past where we talked about this, Dean. Maybe uh, you know, probably uh, you know, limited research here, but uh, I don't know any guideposts uh, uh, that you can do. Give us a quick uh, update on whether or not fungicides are we better off with with variety. But if you are going to do fungicides, um, the, the timing has to be correct as well, even for uh, tar spot. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, for a lot of our diseases, we have some level of resistance that's useful in at least suppressing the disease and keeping it from reaching high levels. For tar spot, we have some hybrids out there now that are showing less susceptibility than others, although every hybrid still shows some level of susceptibility. And you know, that's going to change more in the future. We'll have more and more resistance. But right now, when the, we're at the early stages, I think, of identifying hybrids that, that really are beneficial in a tar spot environment. Um, but undoubtedly, I think there are some out there that are better than others. Um, be that as it is, you know, we have our fields established as they are. You know, fortunately, we can look in our you know, hybrid trials this summer and get some idea of how they compare to tar spot pressure where tar spot develops. So that's one thing to think about. And as far as fungicides, Dave, you mentioned, that's one of our major 
ways to control tar spot right now that's been shown to be pretty effective in other states. And the timing is still under some debate. Um, early timings don't seem to show a lot of benefit. The tasseling R1 stage is probably an optimal single time from what we know now. But there are environments where maybe a later application might be more beneficial if the disease is not well-established at VT, for example. Because the disease, as I mentioned before, does really seem to ramp up later in the season. So we can lose protection from the fungicides within three or four weeks, um, at least the tar spot based on data in other states. So here and there, there's actually requirements, it seems, for a second application. So if we don't have sufficient tar spot early, and again, what I mean by early is VT, and we're concerned about it, we might want to delay it a little bit. So to help reduce the, the likelihood of a need for a second application. I just wanted to quickly mention about fungicides. We're almost to July 1 here, but let's switch crops just a little bit, uh, whether it's white mold and soybeans that you're trying to uh, be preventative on with a fungicide situation, um, or maybe frog eye leaf spot. But uh, is there an issue here on timing and we're blossoming or blooming? Our days, day length is changing here. Uh, uh, otherwise, if you're too late, is it just horse out of the barn, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we, you know, mentioning white mold, you know, that's certainly a major target for some fungicide applications in Minnesota. And we need to get the fungicide on early to prevent most of that infection because once white mold really gets established, we can't stop it very well with, with a fungicide. So early flowering, you know, V1, excuse me, R1, R2, right in that period is, is, is the optimal time for a single application. And Sometimes a second application at R3 is very helpful too, although of course that gets costly. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. If you're thinking about a white mold fungicide application, um, oh, don't, don't wait past the time when the rows are filling and, and the plants are flowering. Um, that may be R1 or R2, more likely probably early R2. Right. So for... One more thing, Dave, you mentioned frog yep. leaf spots, certainly another leaf disease. This is leaf disease that's occurring across the state has been increasing. Again, we need lots of rain to really get that one going and problematic levels, but that one is something we can scout for and then respond with uh, a little bit better than we can do white mold. And Dean, I posted a couple of links in the, in the chat line here for some efficacy tables from this crop protection network. Um, Good. So, sort of a consortium of folks kind of rating these different fungicide products for use and uh, to protect against different diseases. And I think, you know, you've been pretty supportive of that, those publications in the past for kind of product selection. Do you want to make any comments related to picking products for these diseases as far as maybe rotation of products or, or what are you looking at in terms of you know, being the most beneficial and, and probably uh, the best from a best management standpoint, are we, you know, using a product with multiple modes of action or single or how, how are you assessing that? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, but also a complicated one. You know, each disease has its optimal fungicide. Ideally, we'd like a fungicide that, that has a broad spectrum and many of them do. But if we pick a disease like white mold, you know, there, there are a a handful of products that seem to perform pretty well and pretty consistently. 
and they are identified in that crop protection network publication that you mentioned. Um, so there, there are several that, that are, are fairly consistent. And for tar spot, a number of our modern multi-mode fungicides seem to work very well. Um, there, there is more than just a, a handful, I think, that are would, would be very effective if we need to use those products. So, for a grower out scouting for frog eye leaf spot, uh, maybe one last question. You know, what do we have to be concerned with with product selection with that particular disease and? And that, that's a good point. That brings up the whole topic of fungicide resistance. And so the fungus that's causing frog eye leaf spot, it's a cercospora fungus, different than the corn or the or soybean version of cercospora. But it's widely resistant to the strobilurin um, class of fungicides. So those fungicides do not work well at all for frog eye leaf spot. So if we use a, a mixture, which in most of our best fungicides are, make sure we use one with a high concentration of an SDHI or a, a triazole fungicide mixed in there. Some of the products that our mixtures don't have enough of that other product to, to really be effective for, for frog eye. So keep that in mind. We've been testing uh, the fungus across Minnesota and nearly all the isolates we find are resistant to the, the strobilurin fungicides. Well, certainly there's more information on the University of Minnesota Extension websites under the, uh, under the crop area, uh, soybean and, and diseases. So if people go to those uh, sites, they can look at more of the, the cultural of the biology and identification things that you've uh, uh, listed before on, on that particular area. So Dean, that's available to uh, folks as well. Um, we wanna thank uh, our panelists uh, for today uh, and appreciate them uh, coming on board particularly our special uh, guest, Andy Nessus, who is a, a part owner, a crop consultant, um, and advisor with Extended Act Services out of uh, Lakefield, Minnesota. Uh, obviously, as well, uh, Bruce Potter out of uh, Lamberton in our uh, Southwest Experiment Station uh, dealing with uh, uh, integrated pest management. And uh, so we appreciate uh, having those folks uh, on hand. Uh, any last uh, questions or points, uh, Ryan, before we close out? If, oh, if you all right, so it sounds good. We uh, have a very short four question survey. So if you take the time to fill that out at the end, that would be great. We wanna thank again our sponsors, uh, Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council along with the Minnesota Corn Growers uh, Research and Promotion Council as well. Uh, we'll be back next week on Wednesday, July 6 uh, at eight o'clock uh, with another uh, current crop growth and development uh, topic at that point in time. Uh, so uh, make sure to fill out the survey and if you have any questions um, and recommendations as we go forward, uh, that would be as well. So with that, uh, Ryan, that's about all I have, unless you have anything else. So we'll just close well, out the program. July, yeah, July 6th too, we have our field day in Rochester. So if you wanna come down and see some things about weed management, herbicide selection, certainly come on down to the, the plot area we've had for a few years now, uh, starting at uh, 8.30 on-site registration with a nine o'clock program wrapping by noon. So. Just another thing, an opportunity on, on the calendar. Yeah, and I think there'll be a crop news uh, article about that here as well. Uh, if they have be coming out shortly, today. Uh, coming yep. out today. So uh, look for that. And then the following week, I know on the 13th, uh, or excuse me, on July uh, uh, 13th, we're going to have a, another weed tour at the Rosemont Research and Outreach Center, uh, along with uh, our, our weed scientist, Dr. Dylan Serengi, and a lot of good plots on that well, and that'll be up at Rosemont. So 
uh, look for the crop news article about that the week following. Thank you again for attending. We appreciate that. And we're signing off for now. And uh, uh, we'll see you at a couple of different places here in the month of July. Uh, but the webinar will continue again uh, with topics uh, next Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock, which would be July 6th. Uh, so thank you very much uh, to all of our panelists. Appreciate that. And thanks again, Ryan. And uh, we'll talk to you folks later.